Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Today, we look at the growing bipartisan support in our region for repealing the death penalty. With an unparalleled level of polarization in American politics, this previously divisive issue is bringing people together. Coming up, we'll have more on that. Plus, we get the latest on the state of unemployment in Colorado. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. During the pandemic, reported incidents of domestic violence have spiked across the country. Early data suggest incidents in Colorado have also increased. In response, the federal coronavirus relief package is allocating millions of dollars for domestic violence support programs, hotlines, rental vouchers for those escaping dangerous situations. Here to talk with us about domestic violence during the pandemic and the new federal relief money is Ruth Glenn, Chief Executive Officer of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Erin. I just mentioned some of the nationwide data about a spike. It's still preliminary, but there does appear to be an increase in reported incidents across the country. Why do you think these are higher amid the pandemic? I have a a couple of philosophical approaches to it. Number one is that we know the pandemic has harmed women more so than men in regards to their ability to be in the workplace. So they may have lost their jobs. They are now working remotely and the list goes on and on and on. They are primary caretakers for kids who are not in school now. So they've probably had to choose to work at home or not have a job. What that does is it puts women in particular, and I want to give a disclaimer, I'm I'm talking about women in this instance because we know that 85 to 90% of those that are victimized by domestic violence are women. But what ends up happening is the avenues that a victim may have had before to escape abuse have been minimized. When you are forced to stay at home because you're not able to go to work or you've lost a job or you've been quarantined, they become a tool for somebody who's abusive. And then I think the other thing really quickly is that I really do want us to be thoughtful about the numbers that are being reported are reported numbers. I'm very, very concerned about those who do not feel safe yet or, or you know, as a process of, of them seeking safety to report simply because they do have the pandemic to deal with. As we mentioned a moment ago, the new federal coronavirus relief package, the American Rescue Plan, it includes some funding for survivors of domestic violence. Where is that money going? What do we know about how it's being allocated? The monies that we are talking about are not only for domestic violence victims. They are for victims pretty much across a wide spectrum. But I will tell you, for the most part, they're going to programs that are already in place, but really enhancing those programs to ensure that they can meet the demands of COVID. For instance, you know, a million dollars to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which has really struggled to keep up with the demand since last March. They're going to other DV programs who already have those programs in place. But I'll give you a quick example. For instance, we may have a shelter that was originally able to house 10 people 
that shrunk by two, four, or five, right? Because of COVID and the need to physically space and all of those types of things. So they've had to go out and find other resources. So it helps them find those other resources to make sure that they can be responsive to not only the domestic violence issue, but the COVID issue. I want to talk about the Violence Against Women Act. I understand the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence is also advocating for lawmakers to reauthorize this. It lapsed in 2019 under the Trump administration. What will that do? How will reauthorizing the act help domestic violence survivors? It was passed by the House. So the reauthorization has been passed by the House and it will be on its way to the Senate. It will help by ensuring that we provide culturally specific services. We have many communities that aren't able to provide domestic violence services and support to their culturally specific communities. So we want to make sure that they get shored up. We want to make sure that programs are able to expand as they need to, to ensure that all victims and survivors of domestic violence are being able to be served. We want to make sure that prosecutors and law officers have the appropriate training and not just the training that we've been able to give them with what we had. We are hoping that it will close the loophole that allows for dating partners and stalking those that commit stalking behaviors not to have access to their weapons either. We're discovering that more and more women are dying as a result of having dated someone who not only has stalked them, but now has killed them with a firearm. Escaping a domestic violence situation can be very traumatic in itself, especially when there are children involved or pets involved. That sometimes leads to people staying far longer than they should. Do you have advice for people who have experienced some form of domestic violence either during the pandemic or otherwise and who want to get help? So Erin, I don't know if you know, but I'm a survivor myself. I, I've been safe for over 30 years. I escaped a very abusive marriage and in fact was almost left for dead. So I speak from a survivor-centric place and I, I really want those that are listening to understand. We so often ask the victim survivor, well, what are the things? What, what is it going to take for you to be able to leave? I would suggest to all of us, that we allow the survivor to make that choice, but we let them know that we're there for them. We say, you're the best judge to assess what is going to help you the best, what barriers you have in your way, what are all those things that you have to consider? Whatever it is, I'm here, I have your back, I know something's going on. When you need help, when you're ready to talk, I'm here. And then what I challenge us to do when we say that is that we're ready to have that conversation. And that means that we've learned a little bit about domestic violence. We know the local domestic violence hotline number or the local domestic violence community agency, or we even know the national hotline number so that we can help that person seek what they need. I want to ask you about misconceptions. What is something that people often don't understand about domestic violence and what would you like people to know? I think the misconceptions about domestic violence, and I mean no harm by this, but it's important to, to kind of put it in context. We are willing to talk about pet abuse. We're willing to talk about child abuse. Those are issues that we take on and we take them on full-throated, right? Even sexual assault has a different category. There's a misconception that as adult women, we are accepting what's happening to us. We don't have the ability, you know, you're, you're choosing this because you're an adult woman. You, you must in some way like this. And so we begin to victim blame because we don't understand the dynamics that an abuser uses to make sure 
the victim is not independent of them and that he maintains control and he maintains power. It's a huge misconception. And the question, why doesn't she leave or why don't they leave? I would challenge us to say, let's change our conversation about why is somebody hurting somebody they claim to care about? Ruth Glenn is the chief executive officer of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Ruth, thank you so very much for being here today. Thank you so much. In 2020, Colorado became the 22nd state to abolish the death penalty. But in Wyoming, lawmakers have again defeated a proposal to repeal their death penalty bill. This year's measure failed on a 19 to 11 vote. Those in favor of keeping it say it's important to have the sentencing option for the most serious crimes. For KUNC, Maggie Mullen has more on how the death penalty repeal has become more bipartisan in recent years. Wyoming is one of 28 states that still has the death penalty. And the last time someone was executed was in 1992. But what I come away with remembering about that... That's Republican Senator Kale Case speaking on the Wyoming Senate floor. Is when that execution actually occurred, I felt it. And people all over Wyoming felt it because we were part of it. Case was speaking this month in favor of a bill to repeal the death penalty in Wyoming. It went on to fail by just eight votes. About a decade ago, that kind of margin in this conservative legislature was unimaginable. I've been around now for, I'm going on my 11th year, I brought an anti-death penalty bill my very first year. That's Wyoming's House Minority Floor Leader, Kathy Connolly. It was in 2010 when the Democrat introduced her first anti-death penalty bill. It was a pretty partisan issue. It was, and not even all Democrats believed in the abolition of the death penalty. Needless to say, her legislation didn't get anywhere that year. This go-around, 12 Republicans sponsored a bill alongside Connolly and one other Democrat. And more conservatives taking on the issue of capital punishment isn't unique to Wyoming. There's been a sea change uh, in death penalty attitudes in the United States. That's Robert Dunham with the nonpartisan research group Death Penalty Information Center. So we've seen this this shift uh, among people who whose philosophy is pro-life. Uh, we've seen a shift among people whose philosophy is limited government, uh, and they see the extension of government to the point of taking somebody's life as the ultimate exercise of big government. While about three-quarters of Republicans say the death penalty is applied fairly, repeal bills sponsored by GOP lawmakers are becoming more common. Plus, more people on the left have joined the cause. And Dunham says it makes for some interesting timing. With an unparalleled level of polarization in American politics, Uh, this previously divisive issue is bringing people together. Sabrina King is with the American Civil Liberties Union of Wyoming, one of many groups that has been pushing for the repeal for several years now. It is interesting to see, even within our own coalition, the different reasons that people are involved. And it does run the gamut. It basically comes down to two different arguments the moral cost and the fiscal cost of state-authorized execution. Death penalty cases are significantly more expensive for a number of reasons, including longer trials, subsequent appeals, and for high-profile cases, jury sequestration. The death penalty is far more expensive than any other sentence or component of the criminal justice system. That's Kylie Taylor with the group Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. As conservative Republicans, we believe in fiscal responsibility, and especially right now with the way that our economy is in Wyoming. The state is facing an economic crisis. 
even for its boom and bust history, it's a significant downturn. Still, that wasn't enough to get the bill passed this time, and the coalition is already gearing up to try again next session. Plus, Sabrina King with the ACLU says the bridge the coalition has built could take them beyond this one particular issue. I do think the kind of relationships that get built when you do this work lend themselves to conversations about harder things. For Representative Kathy Connolly, she says the conservative support for repeal is a long time coming. And as far as reaching across the aisle goes... It's why I'm here, and it's why I do the job that I do in a body that is kind of a supermajority. I believe in the system. I believe that we as a as a state, as a bipartisan body, that we can come up with solutions. And the only way we do that is by working together. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. As we enter the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic, thousands of Coloradans are still unemployed. And so we're going to check in now on the state of unemployment with reporter Tamara Chung. She's with the Colorado Sun, and she's been following how jobs and employment have fluctuated throughout business closures, public health restrictions, and reopenings over the last year. Tamara, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me, Henry. Tell us where we're at in terms of the overall state of unemployment. What does the recent data tell us? The year-end numbers came out. There was a tweak in the numbers. All the numbers were revised for the unemployment rates for almost every month last year in Colorado. And that brought the high of, you know, December had an 8.4% unemployment rate, and they revised it to 6.9%. So in one sense, we weren't doing as bad as we might have thought. And you have to remember in December, that counted all the people who were potentially laid off due to the late November furloughs and restaurant closures because of the spike in coronavirus cases. You've definitely covered in recent months the many difficulties that Coloradans are having accessing state benefits during periods of unemployment. Where is that now? Is that kind of still an issue? I have a feeling it's always going to be an issue. Part of the reason was during this whole process of paying out federal unemployment benefits, the state decided to upgrade its computer system, which it had been planning to last April, but kept postponing it. Um, But when the new bill that was passed, the new Relief Act that was passed in December was, you know, going to allow 11 more weeks of benefits, that's when the state decided, okay, let's fix this system and then we'll pay out the money. Unfortunately, it took so long to upgrade and program the new relief plans for people on unemployment that some people didn't even get their new plans until at least two, almost three months later. A lot of those cases have been taken care of now, but there are still stragglers. And I hear from them a lot. And um, one thing I can say from the Colorado Department of Labor, they now have this new dashboard that anyone can go to to see, you know, how long are the waits to um, call the call center. There's also an area in this dashboard that shows how many people still have fraud holds because of you know, mismatched information or something. And it it still shows a steady increase in the number of people getting paid. But I know there are still a lot of thousands. There are thousands of accounts that are still on hold. Well, Tamara, I want to end on this report that came out last week from the Colorado Office of the Auditor. 
The report criticizes the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment for its lack of proper financial reporting on payments to unemployed Coloradans. What did the auditor find, or I guess not find, when going through the Labor Department's financials? What the auditor found was that it couldn't find any documentation of who hadn't been paid, who had been paid, and what happened to some of the money. So in the end, they the auditor said it found $1.4 billion in omissions of expenditures. And if, if you think about what was happening last year, when Governor Polis did the executive order for the pandemic and did a lot of business restrictions and, and closures, one of the requirements was that the Department of Labor had to pay out um, people on unemployment within 10 days. So what the department did was they paid and they didn't really document it well. A lot of people were overpaid or some people didn't get paid and there was just no good financial accounting of all of this. So the department got reamed by the auditor's office. And you have to understand though, this was only for fiscal year 2020, which ended June 30th last year. The State Department of Labor has said that they've addressed a lot of the issues, but if you look at the auditor's report, there's still a lot to go. Tamara Chung reports on technology, business, and the economy for the Colorado Sun. Tamara, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Henry. We are all still looking for ways to stay connected during the pandemic without, you know, getting too close. You may have heard of or even participated in a virtual board game night or virtual happy hour with friends. But have you ever thought about writing stories as a group with loved ones or strangers? Niroz Baturai and Bikul Koryala did, and they have even created an app to do that. It's a bit like social media, but instead of just posting about whatever you had for breakfast, you can create and build upon stories with your friends. The app is called Right On, and Niroz and Bikul are here to tell us more about it. Welcome to Colorado Edition. Pleasure to be here. Why did the two of you decide to create this app? late fall or so, we were at Nero's place for dinner and drinks one Friday night. And he had just gotten back from Colorado Springs where he's seeing his friend Subodh. And he was working with his friend's kid, trying to get him to write something. And my recollection is he was starting on Google Doc. And the idea was Nero's was going to write something, the kid would write something and follow on. But Nero's had just kind of mentioned like, but the kid hadn't really started or you know, hadn't jumped in. So we joked a little bit about like uh, asking a kid to jump on a Google Doc, maybe a little too much. Yeah, they're not quite there yet. Yeah, I got into reading and writing late in life. So it's kind of embarrassing to say, I think the first book <laughs> that I read that was not a required reading was in 2009. And a couple of years later, I just got so hooked. And that idea kept lingering as an entrepreneur who'd worked on apps before, uh, kind of started thinking like, could we make an app out of it? Like the kids, they may enjoy that a little more. So I drew up a prototype and I think sent it to Nero's about a week later. So he sent me the prototype and looked exactly what I was thinking. As an educator, I do value writing and know professionally that if you're good at it later on, it'll help you in any domain that you go into. You currently have about 70 active users on this app from all over the world. Nero's, I want to ask you this. Who do you see as the audience for this app? Definitely children uh, who may have English as a second language, for example, and also for educators to use it in their classroom. A friend of mine, Professor Shauna Jackson at uh, Front Range Community College, and she said that she would be using it with her students in her creative writing class. 
And do you have a plan to grow the audience? Yes, eventually. I think, you know, starting slowly and locally. So talking to schools and talking to families, you know, especially during this time of COVID, like collecting stories from families, something we talked about, like, you know, every Thanksgiving, there's so much story, right? And all of us have slightly different memory of how grandpa did something or uncle did something, right? So see if we can collect those in one place. The initial responses have been really, really great. These families telling us, hey, you know, my daughter or my son are really loving this and they're creating these stories and they're having fun with it. Everyone has their own way of looking at things. And then all of a sudden you see a description of an object from a totally different perspective. On that note, we spoke to two of the app's users, Priyanka Jiri and her daughter, 10-year-old Arya, who live in Longmont. They've participated in some public stories on the app. We also asked them to read one of their private stories. It's about their last trip to Nepal, Priyanka's homeland. First, we'll jump into the middle of the story when Arya learns something new about Nepali language. Then we'll hear from Arya and her mother about why they like to participate in this app. We finally landed in Nepal. As soon as I got off from the airplane, I saw there was no tube to take us inside of the airport, only stairs, and we had to take right on a bus. Weird. Well, after 24 hours of traveling, all I felt was the excitement. It felt like I was home. This is home. I have been away for so long, yet it feels like home. It felt weird. Nepal was just weird. Everything was weird. I know Nepali, yet hearing everyone speak rather than the familiar English language I am used to. Hearing is weird. Everyone talks to everyone. There were at least 10 people who called my blood Dai, which according to my understanding of Nepali is brother. So all these people are my dad's cousins? Weird. Well, it's how you're respected in Nepal. You call guys Dai and woman Didi, not necessarily related to everyone. All right, that makes sense, but it's still weird. The weirdness doesn't end there. I needed to go to the bathroom. Everything was occupied. Walking into the only stall with a hole in the ground, I was never going to pee there. How do you pee when I cannot sit? I was getting so nervous, and me being Arya screamed for my block to come because I wasn't going to pee in the hole. Now that's weird. <laughs> Amidst the excitement of going to Nepal and the stress of packing, I did forget to inform about the common form of bathrooms in Nepal. You don't sit, you squat. Although Nepal has modernized into sitting toilets, there still are many toilets you have to squat on. You're in for a ride, my little one. I go there a lot, and I think it's amazing there. I don't want people to think like Nepal is just weird. I want them to see how pretty Nepal is and how different it is from a different person's perspective. You can have so many contributors, and then you can just, it's in, in a way you could just talk to them through story. We are basically talking about so many variety of things that we never thought that we needed to talk about because it was so normal for me, but so amazing for her. Since Arya is 10 years old and, you know, um, I don't particularly allow her to be on Facebook and writing stories, you know, there could be people coming in and writing stories and stuff that are inappropriate for Arya. She says she felt better after talking about it with the creators of Write On who are still with us here. That is my next question for the two of you. As you continue to work on and grow the app, do you have plans for dealing with 
the many foibles that are really coming to light with other social media platforms like disinformation, extremism, and inappropriate content for children? Yeah, and you know, that's been priority for us from the beginning. I think just thinking about kids being in there that we're like, hey, you gotta be careful. But also we didn't want to go the extreme of like having everything being reviewed before posted because that kind of takes away the function of having this open communication tool. The way we've implemented that right now is like anything that's flagged is automatically removed from the queue. And then we will manually review those and then it goes back in if it's appropriate or if it needs to be edited. We also allow users to build stories privately with their friends and family, so no one else will be able to go in and add to those. You launched this app last fall. Already, you have quite a few users. Was that what you expected? Yeah, it was kind of surprising, actually. At the beginning, we were like, well, we've got this created, so we just put it in the App Store and see if people find it. And without any effort from us, we saw a few people come in and people start contributing. So we're like, there may be something to it. So we're excited to see where the stories go. We're excited to see where the next phase of the app goes, too. Niroz Bhattarai is an assistant professor of economics at Colorado State University. Be Cool Coriala is a Fort Collins entrepreneur and founder of an educational app startup. Together, they're the creators of Write On, which you can find for free on the Apple Store and Google Play. There will also be a link to the app at our website, KUNC.org. Thank you both so much for talking with us. Thank you, Erin. Yeah, it was fun. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we take a look back at a recent but brief period of prohibition here in Colorado. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.